Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. I hope you're all keeping very well and safe and healthy during this ongoing coronavirus situation. Big news today is that Bernie is out. Bernie dropped out. So let's take a, a few minutes and see what Bernie had to say a little bit earlier today. I wish I could give you better news, but I think you know the truth. And that is that we are now some 300 delegates behind Vice President Biden and the path toward victory is virtually impossible. And so today I am announcing the suspension of my campaign. So Bernie's out. And uh, for most of us, it's not a surprise. We saw it coming, but now it's official. So we're going to take a couple, couple more minutes. We're going to look first backwards at Bernie's campaign and then forwards to the future of the progressive movement. So as, as we look back on Bernie's campaign, there's good and bad. And, and of course, the good first, Bernie has pulled the conversation far to the left. All of us in the progressive movement have a lot that we owe to Bernie. Bernie has been a figurehead for this movement for a while. For many of us, Bernie is the reason that we're on the left. And so uh, that's the first thing to say is I'm grateful to Bernie for fighting for justice, for fighting for uh, the least, the last, and the lost, for fighting for the marginalized, and for leading the progressive movement uh, in, in years past. And then there's the bad. And there is bad because he didn't win. He didn't win this time, and, and he didn't win in, in 2016. And, and a lot of people will say, well, yeah, that's because the DNC stole it from him. I'm going to pin all the blame on the DNC. Uh, both 2016 and 2020. And, and the truth is they kind of did. They kind of did. But that was a given. Before we started in 2020, it was a given that the DNC was going to do everything they could to make sure that Bernie was not the nominee. And there's nothing that we can do about that on the progressive side. We need to be uh, self-reflective. We need to look back and see what went wrong that we could have changed what went wrong in Bernie's campaign that could have been different so that we could have uh, perhaps overcome even the resistance of the, the DNC. And I think uh, really one of the things is that Bernie was just too nice. And a lot of people, myself included, appreciate that about him. He's a very nice person. And that's a great thing, but he demonstrated that it's hard to win in presidential politics by being nice. And we uh, who, are, who are Christians, believers, I th we know that uh, there's a difference between being nice and being kind. And kindness, we should always be kind. Kindness looks out for the interests and the, the feelings of the other person and tries to do what's good for the other person. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. Niceness is, is different, though. Niceness is more superficial and Bernie was both kind and nice. Niceness is more superficial. Niceness is you don't want to ruffle feathers more than you have to. Bernie ruffled a lot of feathers. But when it came to the way that he spoke about Joe Biden, the way that he interacted with Joe Biden, he was just too nice in that regard as well. He didn't call Biden out for not standing for the policies that we on the left believe are important. He didn't do it enough, I should say, because he did it a little bit. He didn't call Biden out enough for being unelectable. He should have said, Joe, uh, 
I love you, but you can't win. You're not going to beat Donald Trump by propagating more of the same. You're not going to beat Donald Trump by going status quo. And that's who Joe Biden is. He's status quo Joe. And there's a chance he might beat Trump, but I don't think there's a good chance. It's very unlikely. So Bernie didn't win, I think, because he was just on the one one thing. It just he was too nice. And another thing is that he he didn't sell it well enough. Polls have shown consistently that the American public is in agreement with Bernie and the left substantively on policy after policy. It includes Medicare for all. It includes a lot of things. But for some reason, they still didn't vote for the candidate who supported those views that they said they believed in. And the only thing that I can figure out is that it it must have not been sold well enough. It wasn't packaged well enough. And again, that's something that many of us really love about Bernie is that he's not a salesman. I like the fact that Bernie says, I'm a democratic socialist, for example. But a lot of people don't. A lot of people in our country need somebody who's going to sell them, who's going to pitch them, who's going to put the best possible spin on things. And Bernie, in a sense, was too honest because he just told the facts as he saw them in, in many ways. And he didn't worry enough about how to present it. So that's my take on, on why I didn't win. Uh, he was too nice and he was too honest. And uh, it's too bad that that's the case. Moving forward, though, the sun's still going to come up tomorrow on the progressive movement. Bernie said, it's not about me, it's about us. The progressive movement's never been about one person. It's not over, again, in part because Bernie has pulled the conversation to the left. So the future is bright, even though Bernie is now out. The future is bright. People agree with the left substantively. We have a lot of down-ballot races upcoming where there's progressives that are running. So I'd encourage you in your state, if you're on the left, you're a progressive, don't give up. Look at the down-ballot races and see if there's a candidate that supports a progressive agenda that you can still vote for. Going forward, we need probably, I think, to, again, package the message better. We need to to put a better spin on the message so as to win over more of the American public. And again, I, I love the fact that Bernie said, I'm a democratic socialist. But if, you, if we have to stop saying that, if the next candidate or the next leader of the movement uh, has to say it some different way, then so be it. For me and for those of us who come at it from the perspective of the Christian left, what is most urgent is not what we call ourselves. It's not the titles that we appropriate. What is most urgent is addressing the needs of people who are suffering, who are struggling, and there's so many of them in our country. So if we need to, to use different language, maybe I, I've heard another uh, podcaster say that maybe what would help would be to demonstrate that this movement, the progressive movement, is American. It's patriotic in a sense. There's a long history of progressivism in American history. 
and great American heroes like Dorothy Day, who we talked about last time, like MLK, who we're going to talk about this time, were progressives. So we shouldn't let the people on the right have that narrative or get that point that we're the patriotic ones. We're the ones that are really American. And you guys on the left, you're, uh, you're more Russian than American or whatever they would say. It's American to be on the left. It's patriotic to be on the left because being on the left is a way of loving our fellow countrymen, of loving our fellow Americans. So we're still left now with with, uh, Biden and Trump. Bernie's out. Biden's going to be the nominee. It it looks like unless something dramatic happens, it's going to be Biden versus Trump. And so we're left with this question. In the meantime, what, what do we do now that it's Biden versus Trump? And Biden came out today in response to Bernie's announcement that he was dropping out. And I want to share just a little bit about what he said in response to that announcement. So Biden released this statement and he said a lot of things. One of the things he said was this. Speaking to uh, Bernie supporters. He says, and to your supporters, I make the same commitment. I see you. I hear you. And I understand the urgency of what it is we have to get done in this country. I hope you will join us, he says to Bernie supporters. You are more than welcome. You're needed. So he's making this appeal to Bernie supporters, and he says, I see the urgency of what we have to get done. But here's the problem. He doesn't see the urgency of what we need to get done. He just doesn't. And there's probably no better uh, way of illustrating that than to remind you of when Biden essentially said that he was going to, if he was in office, if he was president, and by some miracle, if uh, in the way he said it, if Medicare for all came to his desk as president, he said, basically, it's pretty likely that he would veto it. So let's let's roll the clip of that so you can see what he's saying. So you so you can't say I'm putting words in his mouth. Let's play the, the video and see exactly the words that he used other candidates this kind of question veto question let's flash forward your president bernie sanders is still active in the senate he manages to get medicare for all through the senate in some compromised version the elizabeth warren version or or other version nancy pelosi gets a version of it through the house of representatives it comes to your desk do you veto it i would veto anything that delays providing the security and the certainty of health care being available now. If they got that through and by some miracle, and there was an epiphany that occurred, and some miracle occurred that said, okay, it's passed, then you got to look at the cost. I want to know, how did they find the $35 trillion? What is that doing? Is it going to significantly raise taxes on the middle class, which it will? What's going to happen? So as you heard, he doesn't specifically say, yeah, I'm going to veto it. But he leaves you thinking that is a pretty good chance that if the House and the Senate pass Medicare for all, he would, in fact, veto it. So when when he says, I understand the urgency of what Bernie supporters and Bernie himself have been pushing for, you got to understand he doesn't. It's not true that he understands it. He doesn't understand the urgency, apparently, of the fact 
that 60,000 people die in this country each year as a result of lack of health care. That's not urgent to him because he says, okay, 60,000 people die, but it's going to cost a lot of money to be sure they don't. As if that's a good reason. We should be okay with, with that happening because it costs too much money to do anything substantively that's going to change it. And by the way, one thing that, that is so interesting and I can't understand is that you hear this argument all the time when it comes to the things that Bernie was pushing for, how you're going to pay for it. Over and over again, you hear that. But the funny thing is, you can go to Bernie's website, berniesanders.com. I don't know how much longer it's going to be up, but as of now, it's still up. And Bernie lays out how he's going to pay for it. Very specifically. So this question of how you're going to pay for it, first of all, is crazy when it's a question of lives being lost. Don't say you understand the urgency and then say, yeah, but we really can't do much to, to change it. I know Biden has his own health care plan. It's not really a substantive change or a substantive move forward from, from what we currently have. Don't say you understand the urgency if you don't understand the urgency, number one. And don't say, how are we going to pay for it when the person who's pushing it tells us how we're going to pay for it? So what do we do going forward? I, I can't, uh, nor would I want to tell anyone how to vote, but I can't vote for Biden. Not voting for Biden. Why would I vote for Biden? Biden does not stand for the things that those of us who are on the left stand for and believe in. So why would we? You hear claims from the Democratic Party, the Democratic establishment that we got we to gotta get behind Biden because he's the nominee. To me, it doesn't matter if there's a Democrat or Republican in the White House. And there's a lot of people who feel the same way on the left. I'm not fighting for a Democrat to be in the White House. I'm fighting for somebody who's going to care for the poor and the marginalized and the least and the last and the lost. And if that person has an R before his name, that's great. I'll go for that person. If that person has a D before his name, I'll go for that person. But if that person is not fighting for those things, it doesn't matter if they have a D or if they have an R. I'm not voting for them. So what should we do? I, I can't tell you again uh, how to vote. I can just tell you I'm not voting for Biden uh, because I don't know why I would. And uh, number two, voting for Biden, in a sense, will help to propagate the status quo. It'll help to keep things going as they have been going. The Democratic Party thinks that they can keep doing what they have been doing, which is to take the nomination from the progressive candidate or fight against the progressive candidate and that those who support that candidate will ultimately fall in line between, behind the candidate of their choosing. In this case, it's Biden. So I think it would be a mistake to do that. It would help to prop up the status quo, help to prop up the establishment. And that's the last thing that we need to do. So on the podcast, we talk about political, philosophical, theological issues from the perspective of the Christian left. And one thing that needs to be talked about and is not talked about enough, both in the culture at large and in the church, 
is the need for criminal justice reform. Our criminal justice system has a lot of problems. And one of those problems we're going to talk about today is private prisons. Many people out there might not be aware of the fact that in the U.S. we have private prisons. And these are prisons that are run not by the government, but by private corporations for profit. And actually, a good number of people in the U.S. who are imprisoned are imprisoned in these private prisons. The Sentencing Project says that in 2017, private prisons incarcerated 121,718 people, which is 8.2% of the total state and federal prison population. So 8.2% were in private prisons. We have a problem with our prison system in general, as can be seen from a couple things. First of all, the amount of people that we imprison is higher than any other country in the world. So why would that be? Is it, is it the case that more Americans are criminals or have criminal tendencies than do people who live in other nations? It's probably not the case. Another problem is the recidivism rate. The recidivism rate is the rate at which people who, having left prison, having been released from prison, ultimately wind up back in prison. So it's high. So there's problems with prison, the prison system in general, but this problem of private prisons brings things to a whole nother level. It's a problem that we have private prisons. Why is it a problem? Uh, well, it's a problem because it incentivizes people, namely the people who run and represent these private prisons, to fight to see more and more people locked up for longer periods of time and to treat them worse while they're in there. So there was a story in, uh, I believe it was Pennsylvania, and uh, this was a story about a juvenile detention center. And in this juvenile detention center, uh, it was found that the people who ran this center had actually paid money to a judge in order to sentence them to, to time in this detention center for petty crimes, like, for example, shoplifting DVDs or failing to appear at hearings. And they said they were never notified of the hearings, but they didn't show up to the hearing. And they wound up in this detention center. And it was, again, discovered that it was because two judges had accepted money from these people. So these private prisons actually have lobbying groups. One is called the CCA, the other, uh, the GEO group. They lobby politicians to do things that are in their interest, namely to send them prisoners, to keep prisoners flowing in their doors. I would think, hopefully, that anyone can see why that's a problem. That some people, it's in their vested interest and are fighting for having more and more people in prison or juvenile detention centers in a country where we already imprison more people than anywhere else in the world. And then, once they're in prison, the circumstances of those in these private prisons are not good. Because again, a private prison is a corporation, so they want to maximize revenue. That means they're going to fight as much as they can to get more and more people in their doors and to keep them there. 
and they want to minimize their costs. That means wherever they can find a place to cut corners within the prison, they're going to take that opportunity. So there's a story that came up in the New York Times that described the circumstances in one of these private prisons. In this case, it was in Mississippi. And I want to share with you what that article reported. On the witness stand and under pressure, Frank Shaw, the warden of the East Mississippi Correctional Facility, could not guarantee that the prison was capable of performing its most basic function. Asked if the guards were supposed to keep inmates in their cells, he said wearily, they do their best. According to evidence and testimony at a federal civil rights trial, far worse things were happening at the prison than inmates strolling around during a lockdown. A mentally ill man on suicide watch hanged himself. Gang members were allowed to beat other prisoners. And those whose cries for medical attention were ignored resorted to setting fires in their cells. So many shackled men have recounted instances of extraordinary violence and neglect in the prison that the judge has complained of exhaustion. So again, the situation for these people once they're in the prison is terrible. And, and how could it be any other way? Because the prison is a corporation. So they're going to cut corners. They're going to have less guards. They're going to just generally do whatever they can to keep their costs down. Making a profit off of people's freedom and rights being taken away and deprived is immoral. It's unjust. It's not what Christ would do. Is there anyone out there who thinks that if Christ himself were on earth right now, he would say, yeah, let's, we should really privatize the prison system. And in fact, let's privatize it more. Is there anyone who thinks that, that Christ would be okay with people profiting off of people being deprived of their freedoms and their liberties? And not only that, but while they're being so deprived, being treated terribly, being treated essentially like animals. Now, some people, including many people who are Christians and who claim the name of Christ and the follow Christ, actually would probably say yes, especially to the, the latter thing. That is, they would say, yeah, if somebody's in prison, then they deserve whatever they get. These people that are in prison, that are, that are killing themselves, that are al allowed to be beaten by the guards because they're understaffed, because they're a private prison, it's great. They should be because, after all, they're criminals. So they deserve it. Was that the attitude, though, of Christ to, towards prisoners? No. Jesus said, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Jesus says that when we face him at, at the judgment, we're going to be rewarded and judged in part on how we treated prisoners, whether we came and visited those who were in prison. There's no justification from the Christian perspective for mistreating or supporting or going along with or being okay with the mistreatment of prisoners and saying they deserve it is not a justification. And the reason why it's not a justification is because we too deserve punishment from God because of our sins. 
But nevertheless, God did not punish us for our sins. He forgave us and gave us grace. So how can we who are Christians be okay with there being private prisons where people make a profit off of depriving others of their rights and where people are mistreated, treated like nothing more than animals? So what I'd say to all of us out there who are, who are believers, we can't be okay with the prison system as it is. We can't be okay with private prisons in particular and the way in which prisoners are treated therein. We need to look as we vote, we need to look, where do our politicians stand on this? Are our politicians for the humane treatment of those who are imprisoned? And we ourselves, our attitude towards prisoners for a lot of us has got to change. Prisoners, those who are in our prisons, our private prisons, our public prisons, they've done a lot of bad things in in many cases. Some haven't, but some have. But either way, we're called to visit those who are imprisoned. We should visit those who are imprisoned. We should pray for those who are in prison, not be okay with their mistreatment. And there's a second issue today we're going to talk about when it comes to criminal justice reform, and it's this. Should the criminal justice system be rehabilitative or should it be punitive? It's an important question. Should it be really rehabilitative, meaning should it seek to help prisoners to overcome whatever factors in their life led them to commit the crime that got them into jail? Or should our criminal justice system be punitive? Should the goal of it be to exact judgment upon people for their crimes, whether real or purported. And I would argue that Christians actually cannot support a punitive criminal justice system. We cannot ask our criminal justice system to punish those who have committed crimes. And the reason for that is um, a couple things. I make a couple arguments for, for why. The first I just mentioned a few minutes ago First of all, we who, who believe in Jesus Christ believe that we are criminals in the eyes of God because of our sins, and yet we've been forgiven. He didn't punish us. So if God didn't punish us for our sins, how can we say to our prison system, you better make sure you punish the guys who are doing bad things? If we've been given grace, we've been allowed to walk free instead of having been condemned as we deserve, then we should want others also to be given grace. So that's one thing. And a second thing, uh, another issue is science more and more so is showing and is coming to a consensus of determinism when it comes to human agency. And what I mean by that is that it's showing that human beings and the actions that they undertake are determined either in very large part or completely by their neurobiology. And actually, that idea of determinism, it it fits in pretty well with at least certain understandings of determinism that you find in the Christian tradition. So, for example, certain understandings of predestination, the more deterministic ones, seem to coincide with that scientific, now almost consensus, that we are determined. So what difference does that make for criminal justice? It makes, it makes really a big difference. 
If a person does what they do because they were determined to do so by factors outside of their control, namely their neurobiology, uh, by their upbringing, and if we look at it from a spiritual perspective, their slavery to sin, if that's the case, then it makes a lot more sense to view them not so much as perpetrators to be punished, but rather as victims to be rehabilitated. So because the gospel tells us that we were criminals who have been pardoned, and because science and some of the Christian tradition at least speaks of the determination of our actions by factors outside of our control, we as Christians should be fighting for a criminal justice system that is rehabilitative rather than punitive. And so my question is, which one do you think we have now? Is our criminal justice system first and foremost trying to rehabilitate people or is it trying to punish them? I think the answer is the second. Donald Trump, when he was talking about the Jesse Smollett case not long ago, he said this. He said, dangerous criminals must be punished to the fullest extent of the law. And Joe Biden, by the way, is no better. He, he seems to feel exactly the same way. As Christians, we have to fight for a prison system and a criminal justice system that seeks to rehabilitate criminals, not punish them. So one thing we're doing on the podcast is trying to highlight for you some heroes of the Christian left. Many people, for them, it's still an oddity to think that there could be such a thing as a Christian who politically is on the left. But the truth is that there's a lot of them. There has been a lot of them throughout history and a lot of them even right here in the United States. One example of such a person is Martin Luther King Jr., somebody who is universally revered on both the left and the right. And there's a Martin Luther King Jr. that we all know. And uh, that can be summarized by uh, an article that we've got pulled up here. So here's just, just a summary. Martin Luther King Jr., born January 15th, 1929, died April 4th, 1968, was an American Christian minister and activist who became the most visible spokesperson and leader in the civil rights movement from 1955 until his assassination in 1968. King is best known for advancing civil rights through nonviolence and civil disobedience, inspired by his Christian beliefs and the nonviolent activism of Mahatma Gandhi. And of course, many of us know Martin Luther King from uh, his famous I Have a Dream speech. Unfortunately, that's the extent of what many of us know about him. We know he was a civil rights activist as he was, and he, uh, we owe him a lot for what he did in our country to bring about uh, civil rights. There's still a long way to go, but he was certainly a wonderful and tremendous leader in that regard. Something that many people don't know about Martin Luther King, however, is that he was on, on the left, uh, politically, economically, and some people will disagree with that. There's, just like with any major figure, there's debates over his legacy, but the evidence, I think, really stands for itself. So I just want to run through a few pieces of evidence that shows where his political and economic sensibilities lay. 
And in doing this, I'm borrowing from a few different sources uh, that can be found online. You should be able to, to fact check all this information yourself. So many people, again, they know MLK is a fighter for racial justice as he was, and they assume that he was fine with the economic setup and the structure of our society as it was, as long as there could be a greater equity between and among the races. In fact, Martin Luther King Jr. was targeted by the anti-communist efforts of the U.S. government. So the U.S. government thought that he had sympathies in that direction towards the left, even towards communism. And you might say, okay, well, uh, the U.S. government was crazy at, at that time in the way in which they accused people of communism and things like that. And they were. But it's also true that their belief that King was on the left was not without basis. Certainly among his friends, he was close with many people who were socialists, members of the Communist Party. But it wasn't just that. He himself, in his own writings, said a few things that are of, of note and that many people would be surprised by. In seminary, he said this, quote, Capitalism has seen its best days in America, and not only in America, but in the entire world. It has failed to meet the needs of the masses. In 1951, he said capitalism is, quote, like a losing football team in the last quarter, trying all types of tactics to survive, unquote. In 1966, at a retreat in South Carolina, he argued this, quote, something is wrong with capitalism. And he pushed for something like the Scandinavian model uh, of social democracy. In 1967, he said that the civil rights movement needed to look at the restructuring of American society as a whole and, and questioned uh, capitalism. William Rutherford famously, but again, many people don't know it, said that MLK once told him, quote, obviously we've got to have some form of socialism, but America's not ready to hear it yet. MLK was a fighter for racial justice. He was also a believer in economic justice, and he did not believe, it seems, that capitalism was able to ensure economic justice for all, or even, it seems, for most. He was probably right when he said in the 60s that America's not ready to, to hear it yet, but I hope we're ready to hear it now. And I hope those of us who are on the left will take heart, be encouraged, especially those of us who are on the Christian left, will take heart and be encouraged by the fact that there are many people who came before us, before our time, who perceived a connection between their faith and the fight for economic justice, social justice in our nation and in our world. I want to thank you all for joining us today on the podcast and want to encourage you on a day that might seem to some on the left and the Christian left, like a dark day, the day that Bernie ended his candidacy. I want to encourage you that the future is bright for the progressive movement in the United States. And we're going to keep going. We're going to keep fighting for justice for the least, the last, and the lost. And hope to see you again next time on the podcast. 